Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today, and this is a real pleasure, is a colleague of mine, part of the Emerald family. It's Ren Akinsey. Ren is the EVP of People and Culture for Emerald and the spirit of full disclosure. Not that we have any real disclosure policy here on Great Minds, Ren, but Emerald is the parent company to Advertising Week. Uh, I have been lucky enough to have some of Ren's colleagues on the show. We had Irve and David and uh, Linda Clarizio, who's a member of the Emerald Board on Great Minds. I don't think I've missed anyone, so I think you're the fourth member of the Emerald family that we've had over the last couple of years. And I'm thrilled to get a chance to have you here today, Ren, and really talk to you about a whole panoply of exciting topics. So a hearty welcome. Thank you so much, Matt. And you are the reason why I have my own show at Great Minds. I think you forgot to mention that. Part. Oh, no, we didn't forget. We will get to people and culture of the podcast. Absolutely. I love how it's posted on your resume now. It's like a separate entry. Yes. I yes. love I love that. So, so Ren, let, let's start in an unusual place with you. And let's go back to what is still one of my favorites today, still around in this crazed Instagram world of who's got the best this, the best that, this world of discovery in the culinary arts, you had a distinguished tenure at one of the best working in HR at Two Boots Pizza. Oh, yes. So I'd love to start our conversation going back to those days, give or take about a dozen years ago, to Two Boots Pizza. I'm glad you brought up Two Boots because if you are in New York City, you know Two Boots. You grew up eating Two Boots, and it is definitely a cultural establishment. Two Boots was my first full-time HR position, and it was my first director of HR position, and that was about 11 years ago, actually, 2013. It was a wonderful opportunity. I ate a lot of pizza. It was actually the reason why I became vegan. Because I realize if there's vegan pizza, then I'm okay and I don't have to eat meat anymore. And it was probably one of the first experiences where I had to learn a lot on the job and grow into the role. And the movement into HR, talk about that pathway. You've now had a number of gigs rising up to your current one as EVP at Emerald, overseeing all people and culture. But talk about that decision to go into HR and what was behind it. And, you know, if you had to do it again, would you keep it or would you change it? If I had to do it again, I would do it again over and over. It's actually one of the career paths that I try to convince people to go into because I love it so much and there's so much job satisfaction. It's not a thankless job, which is, you know, despite what most people think, it is um, a wonderful opportunity to advocate for people and for the company at the same time. The way I got into HR, I was actually in financial accounting. <laughs> that was my first job out of college. When I graduated, it was at the height of the financial crisis. I wanted to go to law school because I always thought that I would advocate for someone or something, whether that was a movement or a person. I didn't get to go to law school because with the financial um, crisis, my parents' finances were impacted. And as an immigrant, I did not qualify for loans of any kind. So I wasn't able to pursue that career path, which was what I really wanted to do. 
I went into financial accounting because it was the only job that was available. And the recruiter at the time sent me for a job that I was not qualified for. I did well in the interview and got the gig. Again, learned on the job. I would leave my job at the time telling my friends, my brain is sweating because it was just so hard to be good at it. It was a, you know, it was something that I really needed to try so hard to be good at all the time. So I knew it was not really aligned as far as what I wanted to do. After financial accounting, I went into being an accountant for a music label called 69 Records. And that was a position where I had both HR and accounting responsibilities. So I made the transition that way. But when I applied to Two Boots, I was not at all qualified for the role that I applied to. It was my cover letter that actually got me the interview. The per, the woman that hired me, Amy, said, I, I, I asked you to come because I really liked your cover letter. So that's how it all happened. What no regrets. It, what was in that cover letter? I don't know. I have it. <laughs> I have it somewhere. I could, I still have it, of course, in my email. I think the cover letter spoke to the job. I'm very, very um, adamant about having a resume that fits the role versus just having a resume that you send to every role that that you think is good for you. At the time, because I knew that I was going to get overlooked a lot for HR positions, full-time HR positions, my strategy was to talk about my resume and talk about my background as it as it related to the role that I was applying to. So it was very much customized to what the role wanted. And I'm sure because of the role, I'm sure it had something to do with being able to run payroll on a weekly basis, being very in tune with the compliance because I still loved law and I was always keeping in touch with like labor law developments, et cetera. So I'm sure it had something to do with that, which is exactly what a hospitality HR role needed. Great. So you did your homework. Yes. Yes. I encourage everyone to do their homework. You know, when I left accounting, it was a big career move and I was not young per se. I was not in an entry law position and I had an apartment in the city that I had to afford. I had to give that up in order to make the career change. But then you have to do your homework. So if you are looking for a career change, if you are looking to basically grow into a role and and have that stretch position, you have to do your homework and you have to put in the effort to get the role that you want. And you have to be okay with getting a lot of no's. And when you were at Sacred Heart, did you get beyond academic achievement? Did you do any internships? Was there any hint at what might come while you were at university? I did internships at record labels. I did an internship for Rockefeller Records for Jay-Z. It was amazing. It was in marketing, actually. But I quickly learned that no matter what job you did, you were sitting behind a desk and answering emails and <laughs> and that every job was an office job. I think the the job that really prepared me for HR was my retail store manager job at Abercrombie. It was post all of the court decisions that went against Abercrombie on their diversity initiatives, how they were hiring. So they put a lot of effort into teaching their store managers how to be better HR people in the workplace. So I think the exposure for me came from there, being able to manage the floor, hiring people, interviewing, training people. It came, I don't want to say easy, but it came like a second, uh, you know, second um, instinct. 
Fantastic. Yeah, I worked a lot as a kid, including through college. And I think a lot of those experiences and just how to deal with people. What do you do when you're on the heat of battle and you have a problem or a situation? You have to do something. And one of the things I learned early was, I don't know, let me find out, is always a good answer. I think today I find, and I'm curious your take on this, there's an absence of accountability. Few people today want to say, oh, I was wrong, or that was my fault, or I don't know, let me come back to you on that. Uh, it's almost a fear of being held accountable, but I learned as a young kid very early, I don't know, let me find out, or just asking the question so I could get the answer. Those life skills that you learn, if you're lucky enough to learn them young, often stay with you and help shape you going forward. 100%. I think a lot of, I don't know, let me find out, was natural for me because when we moved here, I was the only person in my immediate family speaking the language. We moved here when I was in fifth grade. So I had to be the voice for my parents, you know, things like buying a house and mortgage paperwork. I had to fill it out for them. When they started their business, I was doing a lot of the legwork and the paperwork. So not knowing something was okay because we were in a brand new environment, not learning the language for my parents was a challenge in the first couple of years. So I think encouraging people at a young age to not have to be perfect, to not know, to make mistakes, to recover from them is so important. And it sounds like you and I had similar support as far as how our parents supported us learning on the go. Well, you learned and I had to learn, you know, the job that I learned the most at, out of all the jobs I had when I was 15, my mother would always cut out newspaper articles for me as leads, and then I would follow up on them. And one summer through my mom, I had a job. I had my own ice cream cart in Manhattan. I sold chip witches, which I think is gone now. It was uh, you know chocolate chip cookie, chocolate and vanilla ice cream sandwich, very good product. And I sold them from a dollar. The company kept 70 cents, I got 30 cents. And I used to work on the street in Manhattan. And that was sort of, to me, the Aberdeen proving ground because it's a real battle out there on the streets. And the law said you have to be on the street, not the avenue. So you want to be in the most heavily trafficked part of the street, which is the corner closest to the avenue. And the law also says whoever gets there first on a given day gets the spot. You cannot reserve a piece of sidewalk. And I would get there, you know, 15 year old, I was 14 or 15, you know, very enthusiastic. And then some guy would come and say, hey kid, that's my spot. And I would say, no, you know, I got here first. I wouldn't give up my territory. And you really learned, you know, how to hold your ground. And I had to call the police twice and you really learn by being in that firing line. And I think those skills stay with you forever. Absolutely. Fifth, sixth grade, I was ringing up customers on the register at my parents' dollar stores. So they own dollar stores and I was working at them. Fantastic. Never leaves you. So you make this transition to two boots from accounting to HR, and then you move on and had some pretty good gigs after that. I did. A lot of them were as a result of me saying no to gigs that looked good, but were not in value alignment, whether because of the industry or the people behind the job that I would need to work for. 
And I think, you know, when I think of my career trajectory, there are definitely people who advocated for me and were an ally to me that I owe a lot of gratitude for. And that really happened at MDC Partners, which is now Stagwell. Right. So we'll get to MDC and to David and everything else, which leads us, of course, to Emerald. But you spent some time at two pretty important companies in the digital era, one of which is still kind of with us, one of which is kind of not with us, Mashable and Vice. Great farm systems of talent going back. We had Pete on stage many times at Advertising Week in the heyday of Mashable. Vice, you know, certainly had a moment in time and sort of missed their window. But talk about those experiences, two really dynamic, interesting places. So I applied for the role at Mashable and I was so excited to work there because that was definitely an experience where you learn what talent value proposition means and you learn what it means to be part of a startup culture, really believe in the brand. I mean, we drank the Kool-Aid, you know, some of my best friends to this day are from Mashable, loved working there, incredible experience, moved on to Vice incredible journalism. I mean, so much respect for the work that's being done. Very progressive, as you know. Didn't feel as much of something bigger there as I had at Mashable, which is why I left Vice, despite really valuing the work that they did. I think at Vice, my experience probably would have been different if I was a journalist. And much like a friend of mine who was VP of the Giants, football Giants, back in the 60s and 70s, sometimes things would go wrong and he would be the one who would get a phone call when a player was out too late or there was a problem or those those were very different times and you know people really misbehaved you know wildly when you're in the hr firing line i imagine once in a while you're getting a phone call where something goes a little bit wrong and once in a while sometimes it goes really wrong yes that's correct. I mean, a lot of stories I obviously can't talk to. No, no, we're not, we're not, we're not probing in that way, <laughs> but just sort of, you've got to be prepared for that phone to ring or that email to come in or that text anytime with a great degree of unpredictability. Always, but I didn't get to make an impact in my role. It was more of an operation and benefits role at MDC and beyond. And even at Two Boots, I was so in tune with the culture and what was happening that those phone calls or those text messages, you kind of knew were going to happen when they were going to happen. So you were in the background being prepared. And when you know the employees, you are a lot more quicker to problem solve than you would be if you don't feel like you're in tune with your employees. So I think a good HR team could predict some of the things that are going to happen and is quick to respond to them. But yes, you always have to be on call, essentially. Yeah, I mean, we're no. not on call like doctors are. You know, the work we do is not life and death. But yes, you are essentially always on call. And as much as anybody I've come across in business, you know, you really embody that notion of people and culture. You know, you're someone who brings culture, who helps shape the culture of a company. You also referenced earlier that immigrant work ethic. Do you think those two things tie together in some way? 
hundred percent. I think the culture that you could make an impact on as HR, as people in culture is very closely tied to the culture that your CEO wants to have across the brand. So in that aspect, you're assisting the CEO in getting that culture in place. I don't think HR could make an impact without the partnership with the CEO. So it's really important for, for HR to be part of the CEO's office. But what I expect from my team is very closely in line with the work ethic that I had from a young age, which is that we respond fast. We try to solve problems. It's not like doom gloom. We don't approach situations with all the things that can go wrong first. We approach it with here's how we can solve it while being prepared for what could go wrong. Love that. Let's talk about MDC. You were there during a real magical ride. And at any given moment in time in our industry, on both the creative and the media side, you know, there were certain agencies that have a moment. MDC had a number of agencies under the umbrella and the portfolio, if you will, that really had a moment. Crispin Porter Boguski, 72 and Sunny. That was a pretty magical ride. It absolutely was. I worked for MDC as the holding company. I got to get to know a lot of the talent that do a lot of the amazing work across the agencies. My role depended heavily on me visiting those agencies and building those partnerships. It was a phenomenal role and a phenomenal brand. I'm still so proud of the work that all of these agents are, are doing, including all the agencies that Stagwell has. I think they're still in the right path. And that was the first time in my career I felt like I had someone who was an advocate for me as a boss, and that was Mitch Gendel, who was general counsel of the company. And to this day, I'm always grateful for him for advocating, even when I wasn't there, uh, without me even knowing, which I think is very important. Yeah. And they really did something that Emerald is also working so hard to accomplish, and that's nurturing talent, which is a big part of your remit. Yeah. The... You know, the agency world takes a different approach to talent, which is that it's always a talent first approach. You know, the budgets for HR and advertising teams are always as big as any other budget. It's not a second priority, which is really important. And I think the reason why all of those agencies are so successful is because of the talent. I mean, we would have career fairs with all different types of agencies and industries and the line for Anomaly and 72 and Sunny for interns. People that are in college would be out the door and around the block because of the talent that those agencies have and the value proposition that they create for the next generation. And that's the vision that our CEO at Emerald has right now, Hervé, is to put talent first. I don't know enough about the events industry as a whole to know that they put talent first, but I know that at Emerald, we've had we've gone through a lot of changes prior to Hervé being the CEO, and we are now gearing all of our efforts in making talent first for our organization. So you talked about the importance of HR being extension of the vision of the C-suite. In this case, Hervé, David Doft, who is your sort of point of continuity from MDC to Emerald as chief financial officer. David is what brought Advertising Week into the Emerald family. Talk about building that relationship 
and really being able to execute and be in effect a soldier on the front lines for the vision of the chief executive officer. So Hervé and I speak maybe three or four times a week on a consistent basis and a recurring basis about all things related to talent. He researches about the best things to do for talent, the new data as much as I do. So him and I are constantly sharing articles, you know, that we like back and forth, how we can implement things back and forth. But more importantly, he has a broader senior executive leadership team that we meet all the time. And the first thing we talk about is talent. When we meet offsite at our ELT offsites, we dedicate an entire day out of the two and a half days that we have together to talent, whether that is succession planning, productivity, talking about workplace challenges that we have, you know, post COVID with all the, the hybrid work that's in place. So we spend a lot of time with our ELT team talking about talent and it's not force. It's definitely something that everyone cares about first and foremost. And you just hit on a really interesting topic, which is the evolution of how we work. And uh, I wonder aloud how that has changed your job, Ren, maintaining culture in an ecosystem where people are working largely remotely. A lot of Emerald's folks are spread out all over and working remotely as a matter of course. Talk about maintaining and growing culture in what is a very different playing field than the one that we all grew up in. It has been very challenging because I'm used to being able to walk around the office and measure temperature just by walking around and having those organic conversations, not related to work per se, but just about how the people are doing. Now, you almost have a culture that is specific to each region. We are 70% remote. That's a huge number. And it's not remote closer to the offices. It's remote all over the map. So forget about the compliance aspect of being able to cater to 45 different states and all of their regulations, which is enormous, but also trying to figure out how do you connect people who are working in silos, who have been onboarded in a remote capacity, who have never met their colleagues that they speak to or email exchange all day long. We have an all-employee event that we've launched three years ago. We just had it in Portland where we fly the entire employee population to a destination that we pick for the year. This year it was Portland. So all 700 of us, three days long, hotel, all expenses paid for, of course. And that's really our opportunity to connect people in a meaningful way for them to get to know their colleagues, for them to break bread with them, which is super important. And from there, you get more of a connection post the event. You know, even our event surveys, we do an event survey to see how people are feeling. The, the most thing, the best thing that they ask for is like, I want more time to be able to connect with my colleagues in the next one, you know, off the regular agenda that we have. People really value it. And we are an events industry, so our entire purpose is to bring people together. It's a real interesting dichotomy, a company whose core mission is about creating experiences and working in a whole variety of industry verticals. I mean, Emerald, the portfolio, you know, everything from outdoor to going back to your early days, the pizza, 
show, which I imagine you take special pride in, but literally you name it A to Z, Emerald plays in that space, creating experiences and connectivity in person, 70% of the company working remotely. That's a really interesting bridge to walk across every day. Absolutely. But I think the fact that our end goal is for those events makes the event teams who are working on the events even closer because they are obviously working at the events together. They have their different team culture. Every every team has what ignites them that's different from the rest of Emerald. Like we could have a culture based around our values, which are agility and and being committed to our clients and to each other and to have excellent work products. But no one could deny that every single portfolio or show has its own culture based on who they're serving. Let's talk a little bit about that annual gathering. We were just with you in Portland at ACE. I think in many ways, Ren, you were the star of the show on stage. Uh, talk about how you and Hervé and David, Issa, the leadership of the company have really injected those cultural values that you're prioritizing into the whole company. So this, thank you for saying that. I was very nervous being on stage. So I know that after you told me I did great, I was like, oh, thank God, because that's the, that's the validation I need is Matt. So thank you. I appreciate that. This year, we talked a lot about agility and how we want to make sure that the problems we solve, we solve fairly quickly. Um, and almost organically, everything we talked about on stage had an element of how we could get to the end goal much quicker. The agenda is, of course, making sure that we give everyone a chance to be on the stage, that we introduce different departments or different brands that our employees might not know about within Emerald, getting that exposure. And then we also have breakout sessions where people could go and learn more about the function that they cross-pollinate with, but are not really sure how it impacts them on a day-to-day -day basis. I think with an agenda that is specific to the employees, the answer has to be to the audience, well, what does that mean for me, right? So, so that our employees are walking away with understanding why each department or each vertical or each senior leadership is doing what they're doing and how that impacts them on a day-to-day -day basis as, as well as, of course, overarching goals. Yeah, and I think as much as anything, what ACE does is it says to the 700 some odd members of the Emerald family that we care about you. And, and I think that messaging, you know, that we think well enough of all of our people to spend a pretty penny to bring everyone together and really treat them, you know, in a first class, not over the top first class, but in a first class way with transparency and candor and, you know, a, a real, you really feel like you're part of an extended family. And, and a lot of that resonates from that commitment to people and culture. I hope so. I hope that's the takeaway that our employees have. I mean, we spend a lot of time building out that event. Some of our event operations team will say that this is the, the toughest event that they put on <laughs> over the course of the year because it's internal. And, you know, throwing an event for events, people is obviously something that is high pressure because we want to make sure that we cover every detail, that the food is great, that the music is great, that the entertainment is great, the content is great. So I hope people walk away from it feeling like we put in the effort and 
the resources because we actually care about them and we want them to have this experience of being together. So well said and really so well done and excited with our next city later this year. I guess we're back. Yes, in, back, that's going to be back, a great one. Back, back in December in the great state of Louisiana. So <laughs> let's move on to something you touched on earlier. We certainly would not look past it, but that's your uh, second hat now as a podcaster. And we are thrilled to have on the Advertising Week platform, the People and Culture podcast hosted by you. You've had some great, great guests, and I'd love to talk about that experience. And you've now posted a bunch. Talk about that experience from that very first one, when I'm guessing you were a little bit nervous, to where you are now. You know, I listen to them all. You sound increasingly comfortable. The content's great. The guests have been great. But talk about that journey to being on the air. So the journey starts with you asking me and then me holding off on it for months, if you recall, because I was actually terrified of it. I am not an extrovert, which is you know shocking to people that know me, but even the tools that I've taken on talent assessment show that I'm actually introvert. I don't really like the spotlight. I like doing all the work in the backgrounds, but I don't want to be the one to talk about it. So it's been a terrifying yet rewarding experience because I'm not used to hearing my voice. I don't like it. I get shy about it. I'm obviously super critical. I think everybody is of their own voice and what they say. But I will say that the experience that you created for me, the voice that you gave me, is probably the reason why I was more comfortable on stage at ACE this year than I had been in the previous years. Because I'm okay with talking about things on the fly and not having to be prepared for them. And you, I mean, when you asked me to be on this, the first thing I said was, what are the questions that I should prepare for? And you said, you don't have to prepare for anything. So that has been amazing. Having people on the podcast that I learn from is obviously tremendous value. I mean, these are some incredible, important people who are resilient and don't take no for an answer who have, you know, challenged the status quo. So that has been a privilege. The fact that people want to be on the podcast has been amazing. <laughs> you know, Richard shared some of the listenership numbers with me and I was like, really? People are listening? So it's still very, still very surprising for me that I have this platform and people actually want to hear what I have to say and what my guests have to say. It's been incredible. Well, you're doing a fabulous job. And I think Thank it you. really speaks to, you're welcome. And I think it speaks to, you know, the importance of values, the importance of people, and the importance of talking about real issues that affect us all, that tie us all together, that bind us all, that uh, represent the commonality of experience. And in this digital age of of you know connectivity always on of remote work everything's remote in one form or another today i think that human connection and what you bring to the people and culture podcast and what you bring each and every day to emerald it's about that embrace and convergence of you know compassion connectivity and humanity and I think that really defines what you do and the culture that Hervé and David and Issa and the rest of the leadership team are really trying to inject into the company on the whole. And it's what makes the place, you know, really an exciting place to be at. And, you know, from an advertising week vantage point, you know, couldn't be prouder to be part of the Emerald family. 
Thank you. You know, change is always very slow when it comes to culture change, but I do feel that all of our efforts are leading us into the right direction and that we are making significant changes year over year. But, you know, it's something that we'll continue to do. It's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be exactly where we want it to be because the workforce landscape changes, all of the challenges that an organizational environment has to face changes year over year. I mean, we could have never predicted that we would have had a pandemic that kept us all from going into a workplace in the past. So thank you. It's definitely hard work, but it's definitely rewarding work. And it's something that I have the patience and resilience to keep chipping away on. You certainly do. So as we start to wrap, Ren, talk about what's on your priority list for 2425 when you're, you know, in those executive sessions with the C-suite and you're identifying priorities, what's high on your list? Is there something new on your list that wasn't there last year? And I'd love to just sort of look into the crystal ball and see what you see ahead. Sure. Priority for us is going to be understanding how our employees feel working for Emerald, working at Emerald and with each other. We're going to partner with um, a, a service called Paradigm. They are one of the best vendors out there for diversity, equity, and inclusion. They're going to help us measure our belonging in the company. We want to make sure that people feel a sense of belonging. They feel seen and that the work that they're doing is meaningful to them. Because I think when we think about productivity or workplace satisfaction, especially in a remote environment, belonging is far more important than anything else. If they don't feel a sense of belonging, if they don't feel like they're contributing to a, a meaningful work, then they're not going to have employee satisfaction, which in turn impacts your productivity. So for us, that's our biggest goal for this year is to be able to measure that. And then of course, to be able to take action to that. I I'm against any survey where we don't take action. I don't do surveys because of that, unless I know that we're going to have a follow-up to it. In this case, uh, we're going to work with an outside party to be able to get this information from our employees and then have action planning towards the results that we get. Well, it speaks volumes about the company that you have the position that you do and that are in such a key member of Hervé's cabinet. It speaks to prioritization of people. And uh, I think, again, in this tech-driven age where so much time and attention and focus goes into the algorithm, uh, behind those algorithms are people. And that's something that Emerald has really, really embraced and that uh, you know, you're as well regarded as you are internally, I think speaks to you as a person and as an effective leader and a terrific podcast host. We look forward to many, many more episodes of People and Culture ahead and couldn't be prouder of the job you're doing there. Thank you so much, Matt. I really appreciate it. And thank you for giving me this platform. Great to talk to you, Ren. Thank you. <laughs>